Welcome to the Water Podcast. Water is a family of libraries for testing web applications. You can find more about it at water.com. This is episode 68, recorded on January 22nd, 2017. My name is David McNullah, and I'm a software tester in Southern California. Today I'm talking with Chris McMahon, longtime member of the water community. And first water user? To the best of anyone's knowledge, I was the first person ever to point water to a production system. Yes. I was actually the first person, and the first thing I needed was iframes. And because of me and Paul Rogers in Canada, water was the first browser test tool, commercial or open source, to support iframes. So that's my claim to fame in the water community. Where are you working now? Right now, I have I am working for an outfit called Salesforce.org. Okay. And when I joined them, we were actually uh, the Salesforce Foundation. And it's a really interesting job because um, you may have heard of this company called Salesforce. They are the fourth largest software company in the world, and they're they're very big on philanthropy. And so they spun off this org, this organization called Salesforce Foundation, now Salesforce.org. And what we do is we write open source software on a closed platform, and we give it away. Mm-hmm. We uh, we write a we have a number of software applications that are of interest and used by many many thousands of of uh, nonprofit organizations, non-governmental organizations, higher education organizations, and so it's really an interesting job because I work on BSD licensed open source software every day. Uh, I use Ruby and Water in a browser test framework to test this these crazy Salesforce applications. It's a very interesting position to be in because I I am not an employee of Salesforce.com. I don't have stock options. I don't have a lot of things. We share some systems, but we're very much a third party. We're not part of the big Salesforce. Mm-hmm. Um, we are one of the largest users, third-party users of Salesforce's software. It's fascinating stuff. And I got hired, it was almost two years ago, because they saw a need for browser-level test automation because Salesforce is putting more and more JavaScript into their front end, and uh, they they perceived a risk. They needed some feature test coverage at the browser level and went looking for someone who's built these kinds of systems before, these large browser test automated systems. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you want to include a, a plug about your organization? Salesforce.org. Look it up if you uh, are part of a nonprofit organization or interest or higher education and interested in that kind of thing. Just look up Salesforce.org. There's all sorts of of good information there. Okay. All right. But actually, I just uh, I've I've caught a couple of your podcasts. And I like them very much. And I was thinking, you know, one of the things that interests me. I'm going to back up one second, actually, Mm -hmm. for a moment and say before I came to uh, Salesforce.org, I worked for the Wikimedia Foundation Mm -hmm. and I built browser test frameworks for Wikipedia software. And I did that for about three years. And when I left Wikipedia, the the code and the frameworks that I had written with Jelka Philippin, Jelka is a brilliant, brilliant guy, by the Mm -hmm. way. He taught me everything I know, frankly. 
and I can talk more about that later on, but when we left, our code was in use in 20 different repositories in Wikipedia. Um, right now, my code at salesforce.org is in five different repositories at mm -hmm. Wikipedia. I mean, at salesforce.org. So I've been building these big systems. They're, they're, they're big test suites. They're long-lived test suites. They work for years and years on end against really large systems. And I think there's just very few people talking about what it takes to put these kinds of systems in place for browser testing. I mean, what I hear, I hear lots of people discussing the minutiae of different implementations of page object models and locator strategies and stuff like that. I don't really hear people talking about how do you go about creating a really large, long-lived uh, browser test project that continues to be helpful and useful over a span of years? Um, so that's kind of what I, I what I pitched to you is say, hey, you know, I'd like to kind of talk about these things. I've got really two bits that I'd like to cover for the podcast. Mm -hmm. Data management. Yeah, I mean, the first thing I think anybody has to think about when you're when you're launching a browser test project, or if you're in the middle of one that's maybe not going so well, um, and it seems simple, it seems trivial on the face of it, and yet uh, both Salesforce and Wikipedia was a huge struggle to get a test environment. And you should really consider the nature of the target for your browser tests. You and bonus points if it's not production, right? So, mm -hmm. um, so you need a target for your browser tests, and and it has to meet a certain set of criteria to actually be useful. And the first thing is that uh, people have to have access to it. I mean, not only testers, but developers and product managers and you know line managers and everybody needs to be able to get there to see mm -hmm. stuff. And the second thing is, is that um, it has to be a reasonable model of your production system so that everyone who goes there, when they see a problem, they agree that if it's a problem in your test environment, it's a problem everywhere. And so your test system has to be a reliable model of the production system so that everyone will in fact agree that if you find a problem as a target of your browser tests, you know, it's going to be a problem everywhere for everyone. And um, the other thing, some other things you need to, to have in mind as you think about creating test environments, it's, it needs to have reliable software in it. You need some sort of an automated deploy mechanism for pre-release software into your test environment so that you can rely that what you're running your browser tests against is in fact meaningful software. Mm -hmm. And it's surprising the extent to which these sort of basic criteria are are overlooked in, in things. And it's been the case throughout my career actually. I think, um, you know, and I've been doing this kind of work for 20 years, um, that uh, test environments are really tricky things. And I wish people would speak a, a more about how they approach such things. We had a, the Wikipedia was a fascinating example. When I joined Wikipedia, the Wikimedia Foundation, there were no production-like environments available at all. Mm-hmm. 
not only no deployments, but no place to deploy, even if you could. So my first order of business was to start putting together a test environment, and it was really, really hard. Um, but we got there, and and it eventually worked very, very well. There is an actually, there's a thing called Beta Labs, or was two years ago, that is a reasonably faithful model of Wikipedia, which is not an easy thing to model, actually. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and uh, my example from Salesforce is that um, you know, in Salesforce, not only you, there's no such thing as a local Salesforce environment. Everything is hosted at Salesforce. Um, there's also there's a difference between what Salesforce calls unmanaged code and managed code. And unmanaged code is like the Wild West. You can do anything you want. Um, but the problem is you can't push upgrade your test environments. Everything has to be uninstalled and then reinstalled with the next version for unmanaged code. And all of this has to be automated to be reliable. Managed code is a whole separate version. You have these crazy namespace issues. But that can be pushed upgraded as long as you do it properly. But then there's differences between managed code in a development environment and managed code in a what Salesforce calls a sandbox environment. So I find myself manipulating dozens of test environments because I have five different repos for five different projects on three different flavors of a single code base. It's, you know, so... And, and this has been true for everything I've ever worked on. Mainframe systems are crazy. Um, I mean, you name it. Test environments are wild, and you have to think very carefully about how you create these if you're going to have reliable browser tests. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't think it always – like one of the places I used to work at, even though uh, we tried – we were like live in production – we had our own production, uh, wasn't off-the-shelf software or anything like that. We still had three versions. We had the European version, the U.S. version, and Asian Pacific version, and they were all different. Yeah. Oh, no doubt. And that means you got to accommodate that in your test code, and you got to accommodate that in your deployments and settings and everything else. It's just having a reliable test environment is is quite a challenging thing it's i i can't remember a situation where it hasn't been a challenge to to maintain a, a test environment particularly in an automated fashion that where your updates and deployments are automated and reliable and your and the and and that sort of thing which brings me to my next the 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 next thing i sort of want to touch on in terms of creating these these long lived large scale browser tests is test data um because once you have a reliable, meaningful, shared test environment, you have to be in a position to put reliable data into that test environment so that your browser tests will, you know, uh, operate on the correct stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and what this means, and again, this has been this has been a massive challenge throughout my career. Um, I remember back when I first started testing in mainframe systems and I worked on 911 telecom stuff, like location software, like when you're choking on a chicken bone and you dial 911 and they send the ambulance anyway because they know where you live. That was the stuff that I worked on. Mm -hmm. Um, Big, huge mainframes. And for that, we had to actually 
we purged our test data four times a year and reloaded a subset of meaningful customer data four times a year. That was maybe the heaviest data problem, the second heaviest. The weirdest data problem I had in a test environment was um, for a project at ThoughtWorks where the back end was this massive, huge, decades old, normalized out the wazoo uh, database. Um, and test data was really, I mean, I was on a team with PhDs, computer science PhDs, some of the best programmers of our generation work at ThoughtWorks. And they were, this was like a flagship project for them. And we couldn't solve it. Test data was just a mess and nobody could figure out how to do this. We actually, we hired a person in who, who, who found the solution, but it was months and we had to get a completely new person on the team to solve this problem of test data. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, so again, just as if, just as every test environment is unique and special and crazy and has to be reliable, your test data has to be as well. But in the the general sense, though, is what I kind of want to address is, regardless of the fact that you are testing browsers with water, with Selenium, with whatever you know. Uh, you're going to need to talk to an API at some point mm -hmm. um, because there's no other reliable way to create test data that your browser tests can address except through an API. Because if you, for example, I mean, as a terrible counter example, if you in your browser test, if you have to negotiate a login screen and then go somewhere and create yourself a user in your automated test and then create yourself an account in your automated test and then put a balance in that account in your automated test. And then only then can you actually test what you're setting out to test. That way lies madness, right? I mean, yes. it's uh, Selenium is not the most reliable thing in the world, right? Especially, and once you talk about doing stuff like you're going to take your, you know, you've got a cron job that talks to your continuous integration system and your continuous integration system wakes up and it reaches out over the internet to Sauce Labs. And Sauce Labs reaches out over the internet to your test environment. And your test environment talks back to Sauce Labs and Sauce Labs talks back to your CI system and CI talks back to your reporting system. That's a lot of stuff that can go wrong. And if you're spending half two-thirds of your test time just setting yourself up my god that's so wasteful it's mm -hmm. so wasteful i've seen things i've had to do stuff like that from time to time but there's almost always a better way and the better way almost always involves addressing an api of some sort and that api may be as crude as a raw sql statement sql statement to a target database just to create some rows in a table for your, for that will appear in your user interface. Or it may be, you may have some sort of like a RESTful interface. I had uh, the social text wiki had a brilliant, brilliant REST interface. And so made huge use of that. So you can set up the state of your target system very easily with simply by manipulating URLs. Um, you know, I've worked with SOAP interfaces quite a bit, although not in many years. Salesforce has its own proprietary API. There's a wrapper 
for Salesforce's proprietary eye in Ruby called RESTforce. It's very nice. Mm -hmm. My name Eric Holmes maintains it. But what I discovered, um, I actually gave a talk uh, at the big Salesforce conference. They have a conference called Dreamforce every year that basically mm -hmm. takes over San Francisco. I think it's like 150,000 people Huge. descend on San Francisco for this Dreamforce thing. I gave a talk there back in the fall. Um, because as you recall, you know, I have to deal with what Salesforce calls unmanaged code and managed code. And you can have any kind of mix of these and there's no way to know without going in there, whether you have namespaces on your database or not. So I've been working with a gentleman at Salesforce called named Kevin Poorman. We've been creating a wrapper for the Salesforce API that is namespace agnostic. It doesn't care. So you can run it against unmanaged code and managed code. Uh, you point it at your target thing and you tell it the base name and it'll just do the right thing. It'll at runtime it discovers whether the things you want to talk to in the API have namespaces or not. And it's quite complex. It's re really, I, I needed help because it's the most complex software I've ever worked on. It's, it's really fascinating stuff. And I'm devoting one hour a week simply to API stuff. And I'm doing programming stuff that's way beyond my experience. I'm learning something new every day. But this AP, the, being able to address an API is so critically important. And in this case, too, it's also critically important because when I'm working with developers every day, and these developers are working with unmanaged code. But by the time they hit my test environment, that code has a namespace, and it's what Salesforce calls managed code. I want my developers to be able to run my tests as they're working. Um, so that means I need to supply them a wrapper for the Salesforce API that will, in fact, accommodate any kind of Salesforce code that it encounters. Um, it's it's been really really fascinating work and and we're doing I think it's really a, a fun contribution to to the Salesforce community and and the Ruby community as well. Anybody who wants to talk to this open source software on Salesforce now has a really powerful arsenal of tools. Mm -hmm. Can I ask you a couple of questions about about data? Have, of course. Have, have you worked in a circumstance where you felt it necessary to use uh, either like a lot of sample data or some form of production data? Like, I don't know, I imagine that maybe you had to do that at, at Wikimedia or something? Yeah, you know, Wikipedia was not that bad um, because we simply abandoned any attempt to test a large set of data meaningfully. Because Wikipedia, the database behind Wikipedia is so huge, you can't scale a test environment in any meaningful way mm -hmm. to, to, to do that. Um, I have done that. I, I remember talking, I mentioned the mainframe. The, our production systems had data from organizations like Bell South, US West at the time is now Quest massive, massive sets of telephone numbers and location information for huge regions of the United States. And I, I mentioned that we purged and reset our test data four times a year. We had very carefully crafted 
SQL statements that would pull out a cohesive set of tens of thousands of customer records because we needed that much uh, stuff to work with mm-hmm. and to make this testing and meaningful. You know, again, there was uh, the uh, that was that's really the one that I'm thinking of mostly in terms of production data. If another one occurs to me, I I will say also this ThoughtWorks project was also really fascinating. It was really sort of impossible to represent the customer data because the back-end database was such a wild conglomeration of multiple sets of data for multiple purposes linked in multiple ways. Um, and I would actually probe this data. One of the as a set of automated tests that I did, one of the most effective sets of automated test data or automated tests I've ever written, simply generated random queries or quasi-random queries against this back end, looking for unexpected data in unexpected places. I, I wrote an article for this actually for better, Sticky Minds for Better Software Magazine. Uh, back a long time ago. Um, one of the better things I've ever written, actually, Brian Merrick helped me out an enormous amount. He was the editor of the magazine at the time. Um, but yeah, production data can be really, really tricky. And it's, uh, it, I think it's, uh, you, you have to take kind of a risk-based approach. If you have a strict set of data guidelines, if you have a really well-regulated database, then you can probably avoid a whole lot of production data emulation. If you don't, then all bets are off and mm-hmm. uh, you're going to have to to accommodate each individual situation as it occurs, I would believe. Yeah, the biggest problems I've seen with that were one is that usually the production data had to be scrubbed. Like I worked at a place where it was HIPAA data and it really had to be scrubbed yeah. before anyone could see it. And then the other was just understanding what the data was supposed to provide to us. So if we queried based some user logs in and, and looks at a list, uh, what's supposed to be in that list and what's not supposed to be in the list. Oh, yeah. And that's kind of hard to understand from from a production set. And that's exactly why I make every effort to set up test data at runtime for my browser test. That is, I inject into the system via the API, whatever API is available, I inject into the system what my Selenium test intends to find. And then I run my browser test and and validate the function that it's it's trying to validate. And then I tear down that that target data that I only just set up. So mm-hmm. uh, one of the things we had talked about covering too, which is uh, sort of a natural segue, is to talk about um, how to use uh, Cucumber or um, Gherkin syntax. And um, I think this is another thing that Cucumber seems so easy to use. And then when you dig into how people have actually implemented their browser tests using it, you sometimes find some really head-scratching things. And again, I at, at Wikimedia, I got hired first. And at the time, so I, I have a confession to make is that before five years ago, or maybe a little longer than that, I was really convinced for a long time that the future of browser test automation was table-based, keyword-driven frameworks. Um, Guilty. 
Yeah. So uh, I mean, I was I, I had down I had tried to use cucumber like early on, and I found it just it well it was kind of buggy and it was just it didn't work very good and it didn't make all that much sense. Um, and so I was sort of like a fan of the BDSM kind of table-based keyword stuff for a long time. And there's really nothing wrong with that. I mean, there's, it's, it's a fine thing, but I mean, history has proven me wrong and Cucumber won the, won the, the fight there. And I think both basically cause Rails took it on, it became important to Rails. So that was really, it became the future. And, um, when I, I was hired actually to evaluate and propose a browser test framework for Wikipedia, and I've looked really closely at Ruby and I looked really closely at Python. Those were really the, the two language possibilities at Wikipedia at the time. And um, after talking with a whole lot of people, among them Jeff Morgan, I settled on Ruby. And at the time, too, I was also really suspicious of Cucumber. I was ready to go do a perfectly RSpec-based assertion for browser test and just abandon cucumber altogether that was really the path that i was on and then i i needed help i needed we needed somebody besides me and so we hired jelko who as i said jelko philippin is the best thing that ever happened in my career he's absolutely brilliant um and he's the one that persuaded us or persuaded me that cucumber was really the way to go and then he taught proceeded to teach me how to use cucumber properly um, so I, today I am a big fan. Um, and so when I write water tests using cucumber, um, I have, I have pretty strictly follow the guidelines that I learned from Joko, which is anytime you have a given set, given step, all of your given steps are simply set up. Basically, all of them, all anytime I write things uh, for a test that has a steps that are given, man, those are my API calls. I'm given I have a user and an account and a so I'm going to set all that up with the API. Given at some page, I'm going to hack a URL, man. I'm not going to navigate my way to the particular obscure page. I'm going to hack that URL. I'm going to go straight to that page. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my given steps rarely involve selenium water this is all set up and if you're navigating a whole lot in your given stuff you may have a little design issue mm -hmm. you know so again it comes back to the you have critically have to have access to the api you have to be able to set up data reliably in a reliable system and in cucumber this is given this is your given this is what you do and then it's only uh, when you get to the when steps that I really start dig into the, the depths of selenium and the depths of water um, and really sort of uh, these are all verbs. When's, when statements are all verbs. Mm -hmm. These are when I click X, I type Q, I select Y. These are all action verbs. And these are the steps in your in your when. And then you don't assert anything here. You simply navigate that path that will assure you that the feature you're addressing in your test is functioning the way that you expect it to function. And then when in, a, uh, in your then step is when you bring in your assertion library. Whether that's RSpec or test unit or whatever you're using for assertions, if you're using them anywhere other than a then step, you may have a design problem.
Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so yeah, this is, uh, and again, I, uh, Jelko was, was really instrumental in my, in opening my eyes to this. And what happens too, is what I find is that if you're very strict about the, uh, the semantics of a given and a when and a then, if your given is always set up and your when are always actions and your thens are always assertions, that's really what allows you to scale um, because you have a reliable semantics. You have a reliable understanding of what each step in each test is in fact doing. Mm-hmm. And when you and when that test fails one year, two years after you write it, you can go back and look at it and understand what it was you were setting out to do when you created this thing. Um, and again, this is something. Uh, one of the things that I did as my, as the browser test uh, repos grew across repos and and grew in size, at Wikimedia. Uh, one of the things I took up upon myself was to refactor these things. So I got to see lots of people without good programmers without very much experience testing in the browser, writing browser tests. That was the hardest thing to enforce was this semantic difference between given, when, and then. And once you clean that up, when you go back and refactor it so that all your whens are actions and all of your thens are assertions, the, it becomes quite maintainable. It becomes quite readable. It becomes quite legible. And your bug reports make sense and your mm-hmm. test failures make sense. Um, Have you ever seen the pattern Looking at somebody's cucumber scenario, where you might see a given, a when, a then, and then another when, and another then. Yes, I have, and in fact, I I I wrote tests like that when I first started working with cucumber, and Jelko beat me over it. Um, and even worse than that is you see a given step, and in there there's an assertion. Um, you know. Given I can see the end result, um, you know something like that, and it that's this is why it becomes chaotic if you don't manage because cucumber doesn't manage that for you. I mean, cucumber lets you do anything you want to. It's the uh, the phrase I used before. The it's the wild west. Cucumber doesn't care. It's up to you as a designer to maintain this semantic difference between the the kinds of of operations that Cucumber delineates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's one of the things I say is that once Cucumber lets you use the English language to state what you're doing, it can lie. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I, like, I, I've, I remember running across a step once that said, uh, like, uh, when I wait for the page to refresh, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, good, nice. I look in there, and it's sleep 15 Sweet, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's two bad patterns in a row. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, so yeah, this is. Uh, to, I'm coming to the end here of the things that I set out to talk about, but um, but yeah, I just think there that I would like to see discussion in the community of. What is a test environment? What constitutes a test environment? How do we get a reliable test environment? What does that mean? I think that's really 
an under addressed question. And then the other thing that, that uh, you know, I also would like to see is that we really need to talk about setting up and tearing down things. We need, if we're having browser tests, our browser tests need to address that system directly at the spot that the test is intending to validate. Um, and if you have to, like I said, negotiating a, uh, I was famous years ago for saying never test your logon screen. I have gotten so much crap for that over the years. Never test your logon screen. And, and my reasoning is that if your customer can't log on, you've got bigger problems than whether your Selenium test works. Um, so, so yeah, you need to find a way to bypass all of this overhead because browser tests are so expensive. They take so long to run. They take so long to design. They take so long to create. They take so long to debug when they fail. Mm -hmm. You can't afford to have your browser tests mucking around in your application before and after it gets to the one critical bit that you set the test up to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And then my, my last you know bit of this is that you have to think about design and you have to think about, um, and Cucumber gives you a, a very lovely design for you to, to, but you have to stick to it. Um, Elizabeth Hendrickson has this wonderful lightning talk that, uh, from a conference years ago. It's on YouTube somewhere about a place to put your stuff. And she was talking about how JUnit created a place to put your stuff for unit tests. You have a setup, you have an assertion, you have a teardown for a unit test. Mm -hmm. Cucumber does the same thing for a browser test. Given is your setup. When is your navigation? Because that it, that's really what makes browser tests unique, right? Is the ability to navigate away, changing state along the way. Because a unit test just talks to a method and says, are you a method that does what it's supposed to? And yeah. And you kind of have an integration test that says, oh, okay, you're an API call. Do you give back what you are supposed to give back? A, a browser test, a UI test is really the only opportunity you have in the testing universe to change the state of the application multiple times through the user interface. So you so you have to design this well and you can't be wasting time mucking around in stuff that's not a part of what's being tested. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I was oh, I had a question and I just forgot it. <laughs> it was As, Oh yeah. Have you ever seen a circumstance where you would recommend to use RSpec as opposed to Cucumber? Um, sure. I mean, I, I think it's a I think it's a design choice. I mean, I think that there may be systems out there that have very little in the way of setup and teardown. Mm -hmm. There may be systems out there that have very minimal navigation. And for something like that, I could I could see how you may want if you have like a if you have no test that addresses more than say three elements on a page, Cucumber could very well be overkill for what you're doing. If you just got to click three things and check something, maybe you don't need the whole Cucumber you know appurtenance to to make that happen. You know I do think. I do think there's there's no such thing as a one size fits all. There's there's no standard software implementation. 
I've had a lot of jobs in 20 years and every single system is radically different than every single other system. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's just uh, there's there's no one size fits all answer. I don't think. I do think that there are good practices. I absolutely believe that there are good practices. I do believe that their design patterns are meaningful. I think the page object was the best thing the browser testing community has ever contributed to programming. You know, that that's a, an astonishing discovery, and it works and ten, amazingly well at any scale. It's it's very cool. Mm-hmm. I remember when it didn't exist. Um, and everyone was on their own. I, I remember when there were no competing implementations of the design pattern either. Um, mm-hmm. And it's very cool that you can on your that you have people on your podcast that are discussing the minutia of different implementations. I think that's awesome. But I also think we need to talk about big pictures and big projects and long timelines as well. Yeah, I agree. I'm I'm really glad you came on. My site is dmcnulla.wordpress.com, and my Twitter account is at dmcnulla. Chris, do you have a website or Twitter handle you want to share? Um, yeah, you can. I'm always everywhere under my name. I'm Chris underscore McMahon on Twitter. If you Google me, you can find my blog. You can find my Twitter. You can find a whole bunch of my stuff on GitHub. I'm just out there. I'm, I don't have any aliases. We'll put all these links on the show notes. Sounds good. Thank you again for being on the podcast. Thank you, Dave. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Water Podcast. You can leave a comment at soundcloud.com slash waterpodcast. You can donate to the Water Project at water.com. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. All links will be in the episode show notes. Music for the Water Podcast is by Lee Rosevere entitled Puzzle Pieces, released February 2016 under the label Happy Puppy Records. <laughs>